Well, this is the uh, the Sunday before Christmas, um, which has always been somewhat difficult for me, simply because <clears throat> of what I know of the holiday itself. Um, Jesus, of course, never celebrated Christmas. He never called his disciples uh, to celebrate Christmas. We know that uh, the early church uh, never celebrated Christmas. As a matter of fact, uh, we have uh, information from the early church, writing from the early church that uh, actually speaks against celebrating Christmas. The Puritans, for example, uh, were opposed to it and uh, believed that uh, it would cause uh, an unbiblical focus on his birth. And so uh, knowing that has always uh, been a challenge for me around this time. Now, at the same time, let me say this. I don't want to be Scrooge. Uh, I like singing Christmas uh, songs. I like uh, getting together for the holiday. And so this week I thought about that. And uh, what came to mind in my uh, study time was that though Jesus didn't uh, celebrate Christmas, that doesn't mean that he didn't celebrate anything during this time. He actually did celebrate something. And uh, that something is what we're going to talk about uh, today and uh, what it is that we can learn from the winter holiday that Jesus did celebrate. And so uh, to prepare us for that, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, and uh, you should have a handout. I've decided to give you my notes. I wasn't going to do that at first, uh, but I decided that it would probably go better if I did. And so if you need that, raise your hand. If you do need one, anyone? Okay. John chapter 10, as I said, is where you want to turn. John chapter 10. I didn't say it? Merry Christmas. There's your present. <laughs> John chapter 10, verse 22. <laughs> One verse, that's all you get this year. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and you'll notice there in verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so he was uh, there in Jerusalem for this particular uh, feast, the feast of dedication, a holiday that took place in winter. So with that in mind, let's... uh, Ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we do have uh, times like this where uh, we can uh, celebrate, we can uh, spend time together, we can be festive as your people, and uh, we are truly thankful for that. We look forward 
uh, to times uh, like this. Uh, Father, I would pray that as we uh, learn now about uh, the festival that Jesus attended during this time, uh, that we would be able to apply some of the things that were true uh, during that time and were a part of that festival. Make it so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll direct your eyes to the top of the notes there, just below the John 10, uh, 22. Christmas is sometimes referred to as the season of lights. And though Jesus never celebrated Christmas, He did, as our text indicates, celebrate another winter holiday which took place at roughly the same time, one also associated with lights. That holiday was known as the Feast of Dedication, as we see it here in our text, John 10, otherwise known as Hanukkah, which in Hebrew means just that, to dedicate. To dedicate. For eight nights during this time, the city of Jerusalem would be aglow with lights, most especially the temple. As such, this holiday is also referred to as the Festival of Lights. The Festival of Lights. And though on the surface there may seem to be no real association between dedication and lights, or the two names given to this holiday, it becomes immediately apparent once you consider the history behind how Hanukkah came into being. And so here is that history. The holiday started almost 200 years before the time of Jesus and marked the exodus from a very dark time in Israel's past. The prosperity and good things afforded to the people of Israel after the rebuilding of the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, eventually became their distractions from faithfulness to God and led to yet another foreign people occupying their land. This time it was the Syrians who, during their occupation, did more than just massacre many of their people. They also took away their religion. The practice of Judaism was outlawed and the temple desecrated through the sacrificing of pigs and the erection of an altar to the Greek god Zeus. Thankfully, however, such idolatry eventually caused one brave Jewish priest and his five sons to rise up and fight back. The most instrumental of his priest's sons was named Judah, but earned the nickname Maccabee or Maccabeus, which is a Hebrew derivative meaning the hammer. Under his leadership and guerrilla-style warfare, the hammer successfully drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem in the winter of 164 B.C. And the first thing the hammer did after ridding the land of the Syrians and cleansing the temple of its pagan defilements, was relight its menorah, the golden lampstand with seven branches commanded by God to remain perpetually lit as a sign 
of the Jews' uncompromising dedication to him and his law, often metaphorically referred to in Scripture as light. As light. This, then, is the connection between Hanukkah's two names, the Feast of Dedication and the Festival of Lights. The light of the menorah and those additional lights lit by the Jews on this holiday symbolize not only their rededication to God and His light or law, but also to stand against the darkness of this world, never again allowing God's good gifts and blessings to distract them from that mission. Seeing that it takes place at the end of the year, in commemoration of the event that established it, and it also functioned as a sort of New Year resolution for the Jewish people. And as our text again points out, Jesus observed this holiday with all the aforementioned history, symbols, and meaning intact. In other words, he believed what it represented and communicated was important to the spiritual life of God's people in his day. So here's the question. What can we learn from it? What can we learn from Hanukkah? How can it help us? How can we apply it to our own festival of lights? And I believe there are three ways that we can do that coming from its history. Here is the first. Rededication to our mission as lights for God and His law. Rededication to our mission as lights for God and His law. In Jesus' first public sermon, He preached the necessity of dedication uh, just as it was for the Jews under the uh, Old Covenant, meaning dedication, again, to God uh, and His law. And we find that Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So if you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Here again is his uh, first public address, or Jesus' first uh, public sermon. And as a part of that, we read this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here we have really our mandated mission in life. What it is that we're called to do. And what it is that Jesus is calling us to do, the mission that he's given to us, is to live our lives in such a way that they communicate our obedience, our commitment, our dedication to Him and His law. And that, I say, 
uh, considering the following. Salt and light, the two terms that are used here in this particular uh, section of verses, salt and light. Uh, Both of these are metaphors for God's law in Scripture. Numbers uh, chapter uh, 18 speaks of salt this way. It's uh, used there as a Uh, As a metaphor, again, for the covenant or God's law, it is the salt of the covenant. And in Psalm 119, we see light uh, being used uh, also as a metaphor for uh, God's law. And so uh, this is how Jesus is using the terms here, salt and light. And we are the ones that are are, are to be that. We are to be then uh, representatives of God's law to this world. Hence the reason Jesus immediately follows this mandate by communicating his commitment to the law and its fulfillment by God's people if they are to reach heaven. You'll see that in verses 17 through 19. Right after what he says here, he immediately goes into an address on the law itself. Notice, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets I have not come to abolish them, but to literally see them fulfilled. For truly I say to you, unless or until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least or zero in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Literally, uh, you don't do them, uh, you're not getting to heaven. On the day of judgment, you will again be considered uh, a zero. Your life will be proved to have amounted to nothing on that day. Uh, How we know that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here is confirmed by uh, the final verse then, verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, what we know about the Pharisees is that they were just the opposite of this. Uh, Though they talked about the law, uh, they did not practice the law. They were not good representatives of the law. They were not dedicated in obedience to God's law. And so again, here we have Jesus then uh, off of this Uh, this teaching on us as salt and light, then speaking directly to that issue, the issue of the law. Again, confirming uh, that that is how he's using these two terms, salt and light, salt and light. And so again, this is uh, our uh, mandated mission. Uh, We are called to be a people who are lights for God in this way. We're called to be those who show through the way that we live our lives uh, that we are dedicated to Him and His law. Uh, That our reaching heaven is conditioned upon our fulfillment of this mission is also implied in Jesus' discussion of salt and light uh, in these verses itself. In relation to light, looking back then at uh, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it Uh, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled uh, under people's feet. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks uh, this way elsewhere. One such place is Mark chapter uh, 9, verses uh, 42 and following. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 and following. They're uh, showing uh, that... uh, 
what he means by this idea of losing its saltiness uh, is a reference to then uh, condemnation, eternal condemnation or uh, hell. Notice in verse 42, this is the context of what Jesus is speaking about here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were to be thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? And of course the answer is, we already know, it cannot be made salty again. Have therefore saltiness in yourselves. Literally that's what it says there, here translated just salt, but literally what it's saying is, have then saltiness in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, Salt again represents God's law. Being salted... As he says here, being salted with fire represents execution of God's law. In this case, as the judgment of God in the fires of hell. What leads to this unfortunate end is a person who, as he says here and in our primary text, who loses their saltiness, i.e. a person who is no longer practicing then God's law. Hence the reason we are to have salt or saltiness in ourselves. To be those who are characterized by practicing God's law. Plugging all of that then back into Matthew chapter 5 verse 13, losing our saltiness will mean missing heaven. In relation to light, Jesus' instruction here also implies the loss of heaven If we fail, going back to our text, verses 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all uh, who are in the house. If we look at the, uh, the parallel version of this, that which we find in Luke, we see, as I've already said, that what Jesus is actually speaking to here is, again, the issue of going to hell. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 16 and following. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care, then. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. What is his point? Well, you heard, and again, this is why he says that last little piece that we're missing here from Matthew's account. Take care how you hear. What are we hearing? In this context, it's God's law. Take care, uh, take care rather, how you hear that, meaning 
that you don't just listen to it and then do nothing with it. Jesus says, if you do that, what you have, what you heard, even that will be taken away from you, implying what? Eternal condemnation. Eternal condemnation. Take care then to make sure, going back to our text here, that you are in receiving it, lighting that lamp, and putting it on a stand for others to see. Again, that you are a light of God's law to others. That in your life they can see your dedication to God's law. Your dedication. Number two then. Very similar to this first piece. I think that uh, what we can glean from this particular holiday that Jesus himself observed is rededication to our mission to stand against the darkness of this world. And that again as those lights for God law. Uh, For God and His law. Rededication to our mission to stand against the darkness of this world. Jesus expects us to fulfill our mission as lights for Him and His law, not only when it's popular or acceptable, but most especially when it is not those things. We are to stand as such lights in powerful protest against the spiritual darkness of the world around us. This is one of the main purposes for the church's existence on earth. Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, Jesus actually speaks to this issue there. Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Jesus says this, and actually, uh, verse 18 and 19, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of darkness shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is he telling us there? Well, one of the things he's telling us is that the way that we stand against the spiritual darkness of this world or again the gates of Hades or hell is through being the church. Again, from the text, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. We do that by being the church. The one place on planet earth where God's powerful light, His law, conquers the darkness. The one place where the, where the darkness cannot prevail. And how we do that is by binding or punishing it and loosing or delivering people from its condemnation and control. The church is the new land of Goshen in the world of Egypt. You remember going back to the Exodus account. Goshen, the place where the Jews were, was the only place where it was not dark. It is in this way that we also become as Jesus says back in our primary text, the city on the hill. And what is a city? Well, a city is not one person, but many people. And the real significance of that analogy, a city on a hill, is this. In ancient times, this was how those lost at sea or in the wilderness found their way out or determined the direction to safety. They did it by navigating according to the light on the high place. 
And so, as the church, in being the church in this way, through the binding and the loosing, through the punishment of darkness, and through the deliverance of people from its condemnation, and from its control, and from its curse, we become that kind of place, but only as we operate in that way. Only when we are being the church. Are we then that city on the hill that a dark world can look at and say, there's the one place where the lights, plural, are still on. How we know that standing against the darkness is the primary context or scenario for for fulfilling our mission as lights. Well, because this is the context for Jesus' mission mandate in our verses. This is the context, again, uh, for that mission mandate. Going back again to uh, that text, uh, those verses we read again are in 13 through 16. Well, uh, their context is uh, the verses just prior to it, where Jesus actually begins uh, this public address. Verses 1 through 12. Uh, This is sometimes referred to uh, as the Beatitudes. And here in these verses, you may remember when uh, I preached uh, through this, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I told you that this is uh, what's called the chiasm. And the way to uh, interpret uh, uh, this particular chiasm, or any chiasm for that matter, uh, is uh, according to an ABC-CBA format. And so what you do is you, uh, you take the first portion and you understand the first portion based on, uh, based on uh, what is said in the last portion. And you do that all the way moving into then the center. And in this case, uh, the piece that I'm most concerned with is what he says in verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How are we to understand those verses? Is Jesus saying here it's good to be a poor person? Is Jesus saying here it's good to be a sad person? No. The context for those particular verses or their interpretation is found then in the last portion of these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, the reason that we are poor in this context, the reason that we are mourning is because we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because people are speaking evil against us. They are uttering all kinds of evil and falsely accusing us on His account. And so again, this is the context for then being the lights. Which tells us that the place that we are uh, most expected to be lights is in and against this dark world. Who will be, because of being those lights, will persecute us, will speak evil of us, will cause us to mourn, and to in some sense be poor because of it who will not like us because we do stand against them, because we do stand in dedication to God's law, which in this world has always been a very unpopular thing. We see this, by the way, and I think more clearly in Luke's Gospel. If you look there in Luke chapter 6, 
Luke chapter 6. You'll see it there in the notes, verses 20 and following. Here we see really both sides of the equation, meaning we see the positive as well as the negative. Verse 20, and he, meaning Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And again, what he means by all of those uh, things, uh, being poor and hungry and weeping, or the reason that this is true is because of Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And here then is the reason, even going back to our account in Matthew 5, here is the reason that Jesus can say, we are blessed for this reason. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven. This is why you're blessed. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Again, even going back to our text, rejoice and be glad. Very similar words. For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. And then we see here in Luke's account, uh, the other side of it, the negative side. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Does Jesus have something against those who are well off in and of itself? Or those who eat until they're satisfied? Or those who are laughing? No. Who again is he speaking about? Well again, the final verse tells us, gives us the context for what he's saying in those previous verses. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So the reason Jesus is saying that uh, these particular individuals are well off, the reason that they are satisfied and uh, laughing is because they're compromisers. They've given in to the darkness rather than standing against the darkness. Which again is what we as God's people are called to do. We are to dedicate ourselves as those lights, to be dedicated to Him and His law in the darkness, in the midst of the darkness. This is the place where God most expects us to shine our light. Again, as Jesus says, shine your light in that place in such a way That others will see it and give glory to God on that day. This is the context then for the shining of our light. For the dedication we have to God's word and making sure that other people see it. Especially on the holidays when we're gathered with those who come in from outside. From those who come in from the darkness. The point then not to miss The darkness around us should never cause us to shrink back from our dedication to God and His law, no matter the threats against us. In most cases, we don't have threats against us. In most cases, the only threat that exists is 
it's going to feel awkward to talk about God's law. And that's really no threat. Here's when you can start speaking of threats. Here's when you can start making excuses for not being the light that God's called you to be. Uh, When it's come to the point of shedding your own blood. Hebrews chapter 12. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Better than to be reviled by the world than spoken well of by the world. Since the latter means we are not being the light, we should be. Woe to you if all men speak well of you. As I've said, my concern is never that you think that I'm a nice guy. As a matter of fact, if you said I was a nice guy or somebody else thought I was a nice guy, I may take that as uh, the opposite of a compliment. Rather, what I want to know is you believe me to be a righteous guy. And the same should be true for you, beloved. We're not looking to be found as nice by the world. What we want them to see is that we are righteous according to God's standard. Hebrews chapter 11, the warning there, verses 38 and 39. It's there in your text. If my righteous one shrinks back, God says, my soul will have no pleasure in him We, however, the text says, or the author says, are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. Notice what happens if we shrink from our mission. Notice what happens. By the way, the world we live in today has become very dark. Very dark. How do we know that the world that we live in has become very dark? Because spiritual darkness has overcome the world? That's, uh, I think, what we tend to think of, right? Oh, look at all the stuff that's happening today. And uh, we use that as the gauge for judging uh, how dark the world really is that we're living in. And yet, that's not how Scripture tells us. That's not how Jesus Himself tells us how we're to be assessing the world as it relates to this issue of spiritual darkness. It's always been dark in the world. 1 John 5.19 tells us that it's always been under, or since the fall, it has been under the control of the evil one. How we then assess it is based on the church or those who call themselves Christians. According to Jesus, when the world has become dark is when the majority of what is called the Christian church has become overrun by the world and its ideas. This is the sign, by the way, that we are in the last days, according to Jesus. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And what's interesting in this particular account is that Jesus' disciples are of that mindset that I mentioned earlier, that mindset that how we'll know that... We are in the last days, the last dark days of this planet will be based on what's going on in the world. And Jesus changes their mind on that, or at least attempts to, uh, here by telling us what I just told you. That's not the place to look, but rather to what's going on in the so-called kingdom of God. Verses 3 and following, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Make sure that you, 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 in other words, understand where it is that you should be looking. Don't be led astray into looking at the wrong things to make that assessment. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Translation. That's just the beginning, not the end. All of the bad stuff, in other words, that takes place in the world. That's not where you should be looking. That's not how you should be assessing we are in the last days, or it's the end of the age, or we're close to Christ's return. Remember, that's the question that Jesus is attempting to address. Verses 9 through following, then he gives us where it is that we should be looking. Then, then, they will deliver you up. Here's when you know it's uh, the end. Then they will deliver you, meaning the Christian, the true follower of God, the one that is dedicated to Him and His law. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, not people dedicated to the law, people dedicated to losing the law, Getting rid of the law. What should we expect at that time? The time of the end of the age. The time close to Christ's return. The churches will be preaching the law is no more. As a result of that, again, people will betray one another. Lawlessness, again, will be increased. Meaning in the covenant community, this is the context that he's speaking to now. This is the context where we're to be assessing Unto the end of the age, when it is that Jesus will return, the love or the loyalty of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, here telling us that this is the time frame that we're talking about now, the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom, what gospel? A gospel that is Just the opposite of that, the gospel that preaches against this kind of a thing, against lawlessness, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. But notice again then what it is that identifies the end. It's what's going on in the church, not in the world. It will be a time when the majority of what calls itself the church will be overrun by the opinion of the world. We see this also in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, where we're told that Satan in those final days will be let out of his hole in the ground. He'll be let out of the abyss to again gather the nations to himself and to deceive on a global level. And uh, based on what we're told there and the metaphors and the signs and the symbols that are used there, uh, there will be very few churches left. Uh, 
So much so that the armies of Satan will be able to surround what it is that's left, which is an indication of just that, that we are now dealing with an extinction-like event. And it is at that point that Jesus returns. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through 5 says that in those last days, people will have the appearance of godliness, they will claim to be Christian, but they will have denied its power, and the power of God has always been the power of His Word or His law. 2 Timothy chapter 4, for this reason Paul preaches to Timothy that he is to preach the word in and out of season, meaning when it's popular as well as when it's not popular, before, uh, because there is coming a time when they will no longer put up with sound words. So again, this is the world I would say that we're living in today. I believe we are living in those last days, and that again, not because of what's going on Uh, in the world, but because of what's happening or going on in the so-called church. All the more reason then, beloved, all the more reason then that we need to stand and be God's light. All the more reason that we need to stand and be God's city on the hill. That we need to continue being the church so that as my brother prayed this morning, uh, that more and more people could be saved through our work in binding and loosing, through our dedication to God's law. The final point of application, the takeaway, the thing that I think that we can glean from what we learned about the history of Hanukkah and this particular holiday that Jesus saw as important enough to observe himself, is this. Resolving to never allow the good gifts we receive, even on Christmas, Christmas being the time of gift giving. Well, never allowing those good gifts to distract us from our mission. Remember, that was uh, what got the Jews in trouble and what they uh, resolved to never allow happen again. God's gifts in this life, all the gifts that God gives to us, and uh, He gives us many good gifts. James 1 says He is the giver of all good gifts. And that we're to acknowledge those things. As a matter of fact, what makes God uh, so angry, according to Romans chapter 1, according to Paul, is that uh, men do not acknowledge Him the giver of all good gifts. Uh, But those good gifts are meant to motivate us in our mission, never to distract us or take us off mission. And that's something I'm not giving you much more than, or I'm not giving you really anything more than that. But it's something that you need to think about. To motivate you in your mission, and I really don't have anything offhand to, as far as uh, examples go, other than that of a soldier. A soldier receives a, a new pair of boots. And uh, because he gets those new boots, he's happy, it's a good gift, it makes uh, marching a little easier. But he doesn't get those boots and then go AWOL. And yet oftentimes that seems like what happens in our lives. We get the good gifts of this world, whether it be uh, the gifts that come from money or the gifts that come from the womb, children. And we get focused on the gifts themselves and uh, we begin to live for the gifts rather than for the gift giver. Rather than seeing that God gives those gifts not to distract us or to take us away or to cause us to retire from the mission. 
but rather as motivation in the mission to make the ride a little bit easier. When we allow the good gifts that God gives us to distract us and control us, we have turned those good things into the ultimate things and are now guilty of idolatry and on our way to hell. By the way, being distracted and being controlled are the same thing. Let me say that again. Being distracted and being controlled are the same thing. When something is distracting you, it is controlling you. And it has therefore become the ultimate thing in your life. Luke chapter 17, verses 32 and 33. This is the reason that Jesus says these words there. Remember Lot's wife. We remember what happened to Lot's wife. As they were fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, the city that God had uh, promised to destroy, or those two cities, she turns back, and this is uh, what Jesus is alluding to when he says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow in Luke 9 and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. She looks back because uh, she can't live without her beloved cities. We know that she's destroyed because of that. She's turned into a pillar of salt. And so Jesus begins this, uh, this address or his address there with these words, remember Lot's wife. Remember not to make the good things that God gives you in this life the ultimate things to distract you from the mission. This is why I've said, by the way, over the years that I think that one of the, the biggest curses that uh, people embrace in this world is something good. One of the biggest dangers and pitfalls in this life is what we call sentimentality. Looking back. Right? And allowing those things to distract us from looking ahead and not turning around. The, guy, the things that God gives us were for motivation. Not to sit there in sentimentality. Remember Lot's wife. He who seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, i.e. does not live for the things of this world, allow them to distract, determine, control what he does, does not allow them to become the ultimate things, that's the person that will keep it. Lots and lots and lots of people, people who claim to be Christians are going to go to hell because they're no better than Lot's wife. Because they made the good things that God gave them the ultimate things. The things that distracted them from their mission so that at the end of the day they amounted to nothing. Their lives were not the lights that God called them to be. They failed in their mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 12 and 13. All things, Paul says, are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. I love that. He tells us that the issue isn't about what's lawful, but what's helpful. And there's another area where we get confused, right? Is it okay for me to do that? Does God say that I can do that? Is it lawful? Usually it's this way. Is that sin for me to do that? Wrong question. Is it helpful? All things, for the sake of argument, 
may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not, and here's the principle, be dominated by anything. Controlled, distracted by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Two principles, I think, come out of this that are related to what we're talking about now. Our bodies, the term he uses here, really referring to the entirety of our physical existence in this world, as he says, is for the Lord. The reason that God has put us in this life is to accomplish His mission. That's His point. Our bodies are for the Lord, for accomplishing His mission. And number two, being dominated, controlled or distracted, by what is lawful or good leads to being dominated, controlled or distracted, by what is not lawful or good. Being dominated again, controlled or distracted by what is lawful or good, leads to being dominated, controlled or distracted by what is not lawful or good. And that is, of course, where it goes. That's what it leads to. So the closing contemplation is this. It is in these three ways just discussed that our lives are a value-add to this world. A value add. So the question is, has this been your life so far in this world? Is your existence adding value or are you simply wasting air and space? God has given us an important and worthy mission to be His lights. Are you His light? Has your life been a light for God in His law that stands against the darkness and is not distracted by the good gifts He gives to make the mission easier? That's the question. If not, now, now is the time for rededication and New Year resolutions in that direction. Jesus is looking for hammers, not urinal cakes. You think about that. And for those of you who don't know what a urinal cake is, you ask your daddies and he'll tell you what a urinal cake is. Final question then. Which one are you? Which one are you? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can take a great, great time, a, a, a wonderful season that we look forward to, this season of lights, and find a way to also make it productive for you I pray that I've done that here this morning to your glory, to the glory of our Savior. Make it so. May we be your lights, your mighty hammers here in this church, the city on the hill that you've called us to be. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.